Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, Charlie Harold. Recently, an official of that agency testified that the backlog of federal checks was reduced from 725,000 cases in April 2018 to 231,000 in January 2020. Now, that may sound still like a lot, but they cleared 500,000 cases. The art of not giving up. So as you said, it's a journey. The entrepreneurial journey, it's um, scary, challenging, lonely, draining, but at the same time, exciting, freeing, beautiful, and unique. Just looking through, let's say, you know, different social media uh, websites, kind of other professionals in the industry, you know, it seemed like anybody that was a CSO or security director had CPP at the end of their title. All that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Michael Gibbs, JDCPP, is a security business legal executive and content specialist and principal of Gibbs Insights. Prior to Gibbs Insights, Michael served in a variety of executive level roles at ASIS International for over 25 years. His first assignment was senior editor for Security Management Magazine, and his last assignment was chief global knowledge officer. Michael Gibbs, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thanks so much, Chuck. Great to be here. It's perfect timing to talk about background checks because how do you do a background check when you don't have the guy in the office to look him in the eye and shake his hand and then get more information? There's a big component there. Let's talk about problems. I think you've identified over 30 key areas where background checks with the best intentions fail and fall short. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's exactly right. We, My uh, co-author and I, Lou Mizell, identified 36 categories of issues that have resulted in background checks not performing the way they should have. And they include, there, there are four different categories. There's guile by the applicant. There's poor practice by the company doing the check. There's poor practice by the company receiving the check. And then the fourth one, uh, I'll have to think of it in a second, but the uh, they include things like investigators faking results, employers ignoring negative findings, employers using the honor, honor system, and insiders deleting criminal records. And, um, you know, they uh, there, there are so many different ways that it can fall through. Now, I just want to say beforehand, I'm not attacking the, the, uh, the idea behind background checks or the way most of them are done. 99% of them work well. However, with millions and millions being performed every year, you're going to have uh, thousands where something goes wrong. And if something happens after that, if someone gets hurt, someone gets killed, when someone's been employed with a with an erroneous background check or a falsified background check, that's a big problem, uh, not only uh, for the company just generally, but for their reputation, for liability, and so on. Tell me about some laws in your finding that that make this process burdensome and and really can cause some unintentional consequences. There, there are all sorts of different laws that have have effects on background checks. There is the original version of the Fair Credit Reporting Act prescribed a seven year check for felonies. Now, if I I don't know about you, but if someone has murdered someone. I'd like it to go back eight, nine, 10, 20 <laughs> yeah, years. Exactly. You know? And even though that original draft has been 
changed. It's sort of, it's stuck as a standard that they're only, you know, you only look back seven years. And in some places that might even be codified in some states or jurisdictions. Um, the problem with laws is that every different jurisdiction has their own, their own, you know, set of rules and, and standards and ways of doing things. And if in one jurisdiction, in Michigan, you go to the next uh, you know, county in Michigan, they may do things a really different way. So when you ask for material in a background check, they may go only a you know, certain number of years or certain types of crimes are exempt. They, they don't deliver that or there's certain types of information that are redacted. It varies by uh, you know, local jurisdiction, by state, and a lot of states are you know, our laws are, are, are confusing to, to say the least. And, and for some areas like, um, you know, for background checks for guards, you know, some, I think it's Mississippi that is kind of absent, you know, it's silent on that. So that there's, there's some others as well. So it's sort of a mixed bag with being too, too strict and too, uh, too, uh, sort of open, uh, there's no national standard for doing real national standard for doing background check. Which is interesting because the Fair Credit Reporting Act was supposed to address that. And I, I still to this day go to, cut, to go do some consulting and I tell people, employers about this, and they go, blink, blink, Fair Credit Reporting Act, that has nothing to do with background checks. They, they really believe that, right? <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that's problematic. I mean, and to your point, we had a guard at, uh, at Fox uh, that we did some background checks just kind of a yearly thing we did, and she was convicted of homicide. Very nice person, and she did a great job. And I called BSI as a licensing bureau, and I said, well, why does she have a guard card? Oh, homicide's not a crime against honesty. Therefore, we don't think it disqualifies her from having a guard card. Now, there's an administrative <laughs> policy, right? Not a law, just a decision by a state agency. So it's really almost impossible to get any consistency on this. Yeah, and I, I should. that That's a a uh, shocking story not well it's shocking but not surprising i should say that there are certain regulated federally regulated industries like transportation and banking and, and nuclear energy where there are standards but those are just the regulated ones there there are a lot of areas like security guards like retail and and many others that are not regulated so i just wanted to Someone could, who is a stickler could rightly say, hey, there are standards, but it's just for the regulated professions. Yeah, that's, that's a fair comment. I, I totally hear you on that one. Now, where should the liability for this be? Uh, if I recall correctly, in California, I hire big box background check company. I filled out certain paperwork. I hired Michael, and I gave you a piece of paper that said, hey, listen, if they come back with some adverse action, that's not my problem. I'm indemnified. You call the background check company and you deal with them. I, I, didn't, I didn't go for that. I wanted to know myself and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't liable somewhere down the road. But when you're shifting liability and responsibility, you know, where should the burden be on this? Shouldn't we have joint and, and uh, strict liability for both sides, the employer and the background check company to get this right? It's a great question. And a lot of that has to do with how you contract for it. And the contract will lay out the indemnification or, you know, who's responsible. I think it depends really on, you know, if in the absence of that kind of agreement, who 
is ultimately responsible for it. If the the um, employer can ask for whatever they want, so they can say that we want the county the person's living in, the county the person ever any county they've lived in for the past seven years, and a full federal check. If they go by that standard, they're usually okay. But some of them just say, hey, just do, you know, where they're living now for the past few years. If they're doing something that clearly is, you know, less broad than the standard calls for, uh, and it's not a real standard, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a common practice, then I would think it should fall on the employer. But there are so many cases where the the uh, company doing the background checks will try to race through it, and they may have a contract they have to get through. It was a case with USIS several years ago. They had we were supposed to do six hundred and sixty five thousand background checks, and they just cleared them just to get the backlog out without doing them. And this is there was a federal case on it, and there were penalties imposed. But in that case, clearly they didn't do what they were supposed to do and and they tried to hide it. So I think it all depends on who's responsible. And now if you have someone who's applying for a job and they try to defraud the, both the background check company and the employer, I would say it depends on the type of fraud that the person commits. If it's something where all you had to do was ask if an employer asked to see their ID to check it, to make sure that, or their social security number, make sure their social security number was the same or their name was the same. That might be more, you know, I, I'd find the employer responsible. But if it was something in the actual conduct that was negligent, uh, the conduct of the search, then that would go on the background check company. Tell me what's happening with the military and our intelligence services. I know there's been some problems with backgrounds in these areas. My partner and I found that, I think we found there were 60,000 cases um, where um, someone who had received background, yeah, in the last 20 years, there were 60,000 cases where U.S. security, intelligence, military, and law enforcement personnel were charged with major felonies. And many thousands of these people had passed background investigations. Uh, and they did so by using someone else's name or ID or social security number or by lying about something or other, their work experience or their arrest records. So, yes, I would say it's more important because of the access they have, the authority they have. Look, there were 120 cleared workers in almost every U.S. government department, intelligence agency and military service that have stolen U.S. secrets for foreign countries. Uh, that's it, there's a list everyone knows of, like Hanson and Alder James and, and Snowden, but the there's a hundred others that have sort of that are not commonly known, and they've done a measurable damage to our country and and its safety and you know the sanctity of our secrets. Now every time I talk to you, I I kind of go, <laughs> oh, I don't feel so good. That's good information. Tell me something that's not troubling. Give me some uh, some positive information. What are we? Uh, we're obviously learning things. Are we getting better at this? What's the uh, the positive news to come? Yeah, the positive things are that um, we're making headway. The government um, 
has reformed some of its efforts. The uh, the Trump administration moved the responsibility for federal background checks from the Office of Personnel Management to the Department of Defense's Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency. And recently an official of that agency testified that the backlog of federal checks was reduced from $725,000 cases, sorry, in April 2018 to 231,000 in January 2020. Now that may sound still like a lot, but they cleared 500,000 cases. And I think that 200,000 is their normal backlog because so many requests come through, you know, for for clearances and for for back, you know, for all sorts of checks. So that's actually, they're almost back where they should be. So that's good. Um, you also have a organization, Intelligence and National Security, INSA, um, Intelligence and National Security Association. My friend Peggy is going to kill me because she works for INSA and I can't remember what it stands for right now, but they are really big proponents of uh, ref- government reform of background checks. Um, they want legislation that would set time limits for clearance determinations um, and eliminate duplicative clearance investigations and things like that. Another thing they want, and I'm a big proponent of, is continuous evaluation. And I'm sure you know what this is. Instead of having one check here and then maybe a recheck five years later, you're sort of being checked or evaluated or monitored continuously. And the way they do that, there are companies out there that will look at lists like no-fly lists or uh, medical licensure or, or bar um, enrollment lists. And we'll see, okay, if I'm working for Chuck Harold Incorporated, there's 100,000 employees. Chuck is going to send me or his his HR person is going to send me a list of 100,000 employees. And if any one of those names shows up on a no-fly list, on a revocation of a license, on in a criminal arrest, it, or a number of other things, that I'll get a, uh, a message or maybe get a month every week. And there are companies out there that do this. And I, I won't mention any of the companies, but there's one that has 600,000 employees and they try to test it. And the first month or first couple months, they got back a thousand hits of people who had been arrested, you know, for gun charges, people who had, you know, lost their a specific kind of license that was relevant to uh, for working for this car in some positions for this company. So it was a real eye opener. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to um, give business to any one company, there are a number out there that do it. I think that's a great approach. The issue with that is the Fair Credit Reporting Act. If you take action against that person, that could um, uh, put trigger enforcement of the, uh, the or, or involvement of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and you have to do things a certain way. Um, you can't just say, "Hey, there's a there's a." arrest record for this guy is a firearm or he's stalking somebody, he's fired or she's fired. You can't do that uh, under the FCRA. However, some of these companies have a way of, they tell you what you can do. So it's like, okay, we'll give you the data. Now don't rush and do anything. You have to do an independent investigation. 
you have to, this person has to know their rights, they have to know what they're being charged with, blah, blah, blah. And they'll give you a um, sort of a playbook on how to deal with the information so you don't act, uh, you don't violate the law or you don't, anything, don't do anything improper. So that's a trend that I'm seeing more and more continuous evaluation. And as long as it's done well and it's not infringing on people's rights, I think that's a, a, a positive sign. That is some good news, good information, Mr. Michael Gibbs. He's the guru of many, many things. Backgrounds have to be one of them. Thanks so much. <laughs> and, and and let's not get started on GDRP. That's gonna be a whole nother show because you can't find anything yeah. on a background in Europe. So I don't know how they I don't know how they do it over there. Thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chuck. It's always great talking to you. Susanna Al Sayed is a trilingual emergency management and security specialist and founder of holistic security firm Hilt International Security. She's also the founder of the independent brand design and web development agency, Evolutes. Susanna, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you for having me here, Chuck. Appreciate the opportunity. Today, we're going to talk about the realities and challenges of launching a security startup. You yourself have launched two businesses. So tell me, where should someone start to start a security startup? That is a very good question. When I was doing research for this article um, to ensure that my experience matched or was at least somewhat similar to other entrepreneurs, um, and I discovered that there there are actually many, many resources available online, but it was all scattered. Um, There would be like one important piece of information here, another one there, and the guides that were online were not complete or you would have to buy the full version or hire a coach to get the full context. And um, even though there were many blogs and articles on how to start a security company, it was mostly focused on guard management rather than consulting, um, risk management, or other types of security practices. And so the information was very um, too broad, uh, I personally found. So to answer your question, Chuck, if of what you should focus on in a startup or where do you want to start, and a professional should consider the following. They should ask themselves, why am I starting a business? Uh, what is my biggest motivator? Essentially, what is your why? Um, and I know these questions sound broad, but you do have to so- start somewhere. Will you be able to make money from this idea? Do you possess the appropriate skills or knowledge for this venture? Have you done uh, the research on um, your current industry leaders? You know, when you start this process to ask, um, are you able to deliver that service or product in a better, cheaper or faster way? And once you do answer these questions, it's good out. It's good to build out a business model canvas, a BMC, which should include information on key partners, activities, uh, resources, the value proposition, customer relationships, customer segments, uh, structure of your costs, and one of the most important also is the revenue streams. And these are the types of questions that someone should ask themselves while exploring the idea of starting a security business. And that is just really the tip of the iceberg. Now you threw out a great word there, value proposition. When I transitioned from law enforcement to corporate security, I, I heard this word a lot, mm-hmm. right? Cause this is, this is a business language and it's a great, it's right. a great word, a value proposition. Can you elaborate for us on that? You know, back in the day, I, it might've been called the elevator pitch, right? But tell us why the value proposition <laughs> is so important. 
So I think that is one of the most important, difficult, and key components to focus on. This is a crucial step because you need to understand your audience's demographic in a way and begin to narrow your targeted audience. So you should ask yourself, who are your clients or will be your clients and who are your competitors? So the value proposition should be easily understood and should be delivered in a matter of seconds, not in a 15-minute presentation. So for instance, for Evolutes, um, my branding company, my value proposition, which also in part became my slogan, is we help companies take control of their brand and scale their business. So you get my company's expertise and message within seconds. So it is very important to identify how your business will differentiate from others, what makes it unique. The demand and markets change daily, and you must continuously stay on top of the trend to remain relevant. Now, your company, they focus on providing branding services. And this is so crucial, especially nowadays. I mean, way back in the day, no security company cared about branding. They just didn't think about it. They didn't know how to do it. It's one of the most important things, if not the most important thing right now. So what branding advice could you give us to, to kind of bring this home, make people understand how important it is to security professionals? So as you mentioned, and I founded my company, Evolutes, which is a branding, copywriting, design, and website development agency. And my goal with this company is to elevate the security industry branding standards and help security companies and professionals not only put their best foot forward, but also expand their client reach and increase revenue. Thus, one advice that I can give, because I can honestly talk for hours and hours about branding, is to ensure consistent promotion of your business. It's the consistency that will build your following and encourage your clientele to stay in touch with you. When one decides to launch their business, they will, of course, need a business name, logo, a domain, website, presentation decks, uh, social image, um, social media imagery and content, and many other aspects. But all of these items won't come at once, and, and it might be slower than you expected, but it is important to build out a plan to potentially find resources or specialists that will be able to help you with that. But with your brand, it is so important to remain consistent with your message and what you want others, how you want others to perceive you. So the consistency will guarantee that. Tell our listeners what you've learned about the entrepreneurial journey. Because it is a journey. It's ongoing. It's continuous. Um, the art of not giving up. So the, as you said, it's a journey. The entrepreneurial journey, it's, um, it's scary, challenging, lonely, draining, but at the same time, exciting, freeing, beautiful, and unique. Um, what I will tell the listeners is that to be ready um, to face pushback, negativity, and professional rejections. Honestly, sometimes I go for days experiencing imposter syndrome, wondering if I'm doing the right thing, uh, why my post didn't get traction, um, did I overshare, uh, because it is scary. You're putting your ideas, expertise, knowledge out for the world to see and to comment and give you feedback. So it is inevitable that some will dislike or disagree with you. And it's just part of the job. It's just part of the journey that you're embarking on. And not everyone will share your perspective, vision, ideologies. And to be honest, that is okay. If everyone thought the same, we wouldn't be here as a society. So 
when you do embark on the entrepreneurial journey and decide to build a security business from scratch, and I will not sugarcoat it, Chuck, understand that it will take a lot of effort from your end, consistency, resources, networking, and you will fail along the way. The journey will be demanding and you will possibly lose money, lose friends, the support of your family and romantic relationships. So unfortunately, during that stage, you might even start doubting yourself, be uncomfortable and see many doors being closed in your face. So I don't want to discourage. So I, this is not, I'm not sharing this to discourage more of to explain that if you remain consistent, um, everything takes effort. So it's good to just jump in and keep swimming. So I would just like to say these few points to conclude. Um, I have five of them. So one, don't be afraid to say no. Prioritize your time. You know your schedule. Two, prepare for your business thoroughly. Write everything down. Schedule everything. Um, dedicate time for specific items that your business needs in order to launch and to be maintained. Three, you won't be able to control everything. And that's the hardest part that I'm having with right now, but that is true. Four, stay consistent and persistent with everything or at least try. And finally, five, take care of yourself. You are the most important part of this equation. Susanna Alziet, she's the founder of Evolutes. Excellent, excellent practical advice. And Susanna, I really think people listening to this are going to be inspired. So thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thank you so much for having me. Jason Ham, CPP, is this month's Certified Protection Professional. Jason is an Events and Security Manager in the greater Phoenix area. Mr. Jason, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, sir. Excited to be here. Today, we're going to talk about your CPP certification with ASIS International. To get started, give me a background on how you got started in security. Everybody has a different path. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mine started on the on the front lines there. Uh, started as a bouncer at a nightclub in Baltimore. Uh, you know, maybe the best place you want to start your security career. But uh, started there, and and you know, it was the kind of the highest paying job I could get at the time, uh, working through college, and uh, never really intended to go into the security industry. I was studying something different in college, but um, as I kept going on, and I get more got more responsibility, started working in concert industry and working in as a supervisor and being involved in decision-making with training and uh, kind of SOPs and different things, I really found that I had a, a liking to it. Uh, I love to pr protect folks and uh, look at different ways to, uh, you know, arrive at the same destination when it comes to, you know, securing a, an area or, or making sure that fans have uh, the best experience possible. And uh, so when I was uh, working in the entertainment industry in downtown DC, I got the opportunity to be a part of the training staff there. And, um, one of the things that came from that was, you know, how do I be a student of the industry? And uh, I got recommended uh, to look into ASIS and kind of looked it up and started listening, listening to the podcast, uh, honestly, and <laughs> got a lot of value from that and really just wanted to plug in and try to uh, see if there was a way for me to make my name known. And I saw there, there were some certifications with the CPP. I wasn't able to sit for it right away. I hadn't been in the industry long enough, but um, within the uh, first couple of years that I was looking into it, they came out with the APP. I guess the early career uh, credential and was able to sit for that and uh, pass that. And I just really, you know, I, I found a, a, a reason to sit for it was to really dig in and, and show that I know what I was doing um, because not everyone from my industry, from the concert industry, and then eventually the sport uh, kind of entertainment industry had an ASIS credential. So I felt that, you know, I really needed to prove myself with that 
you know, widely recognized credential to be able to advance my career, number one, and then, um, you know, just have it, have it out there that I, you know, had a, a pretty good standard of knowledge of what I was doing. Um, when I was working in downtown, uh, they opened a, a new 6,000 person indoor concert venue that uh, I got the opportunity to be the director of security of. And I think a lot of the uh, time that I had spent on my knowledge and uh, working on the uh, kind of the expertise side of it, obviously, night in, night out, I'm boots on the ground. I'm helping folks have a good time at the concert venue. I'm training up a, a staff, like you're saying, part time that, you know, they could be choosing to go anywhere to do their, you know, to make their money part time, but they're choosing to go into security, which is, you know, there's a lot of work. There's a, a lot of responsibility relative to other, you know, relatively low paying, um, you know, job, jobs that they can get. So, you know, I was always, always kind of pushing that envelope. Well, what, can, what more can I learn? And what excited me about, you know, studying for the APP and then later, uh, with this uh, CPP through the um, protection of assets manuals that uh, ASIS has is that I was finding things and I was reading them and I was getting more excited about things that I had studied in college. I was way more interested in learning about security and because most of it was I would read something that night and I'd say, hey, I can put this into practice the very next day. You know, I was able to kind of leverage the knowledge that I was learning because I was doing it every day. And these were things that I could you know, enhance certain skill sets of my supervisors or my frontline staff or look into SOPs and make sure that, you know, I'm just exactly dialed into where we needed to be as a venue and as a staff uh, to really properly protect everyone that was coming through. Just looking through, let's say, you know, different social media uh, websites, kind of other professionals in the industry, you know, it seemed like anybody that was a CSO or security director had CPP at the end of their title, but I didn't see many, you know, kind of in my industry and support uh, event management, you know, entertainment management with that CPP. And so for me coming from an area where, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of, let's say years of experience. I wasn't from a law enforcement background. I didn't have any military service to kind of bolster, you know, my experience, my resume. I felt that I needed to uh, stand apart. You know, I felt that the CPP uh, through ASIS was a great way for me to really, uh, uh, again, put my kind of name on the map as far as obviously I have experience working in the concert industry, but you know, that CPP was giving me that little bit of a leg up there uh, where I could kind of show that I have those those standards. I really feel that it's important for our industry in particular in, in events and in, in, in concerts and sporting events, even more so to be standardized, to have a really uh, focused vision on what it is that we need to accomplish to help keep the fans safe, help keep the game going. Uh, and that's where I, I saw, you know, the help having that uh, CPP was important to me. Talk to me about the social aspects and networking. How beneficial is that? Networking is huge. Uh, ASIS Connects, uh, I've been uh, very active on there. I think more than any industry that I know about, the security industry is so focused on spreading knowledge, networking, uh, making sure that everyone is on the same page with standards because really it all comes back to the industry as a whole. You know, when something happens worldwide, you know, it's it's looked at as the, the security industry, not, you know, this this market or this, you know, kind of uh, a part of the industry over here, but the security industry as a whole. So I, I really feel that through kind of ASS Connects and now joining kind of the brotherhood, if you would, of uh, those that have sat for and passed the certified uh, protection professional uh, license, that there's everyone wants to have the same information because it, it looks great on all of us if we're all on the same page, if we're on the leading edge and we're able to put these practices in place that maybe if someone's doing something over here, that makes a lot of sense. It could, you know, transfer the knowledge and, and maybe apply to a different arena. So even though not everyone that, that I've, you know, there aren't many folks on ASIS connects maybe with the sport and, and entertainment background, uh, di different markets, loss prevention, you know, looking at different areas within the security industry, 
that can all apply. You know, I can take different things from them and uh, then I can, you know, share different things that I've come across that maybe they can uh, take and in, in use in their industry and help them, you know, accomplish your, their goals better. Mr. Jason Hamm, APP CPP. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlight, my friend. Very good information and good luck in your career. Cheers. Thanks, Chuck.